Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. I'm Russell Napier, the keeper of the library, a beautifully designed building in Edinburgh, housing more than 4,000 books about the mistakes that the world keeps repeating, particularly in finance and business. Visit libraryofmistakes.com to find out more. And for those keen to guard against mistakes, we also run a course called A Practical History of Financial Markets, available both in person in London and Edinburgh, or online for wherever you are in the world. To find out more about the course, please see the link in the podcast show notes. Yeah, hello, everybody. Welcome. Delighted today to have with us Quasi Quarteng, author of War and Gold, a 500-year history of empires, adventures, and debt. And it is 500 years. It's a great romp through financial history. But I wanted to uh, get to the, the core of this just by reading a quote to tell everybody what the book is actually about. Uh, we won't get into the chronology. If we got into the chronology, we'd be spending an hour and a half just on the chronology of events and the history of fiscal policy and monetary policy. So from Quasi's uh, introduction, here it is. It is fiscal policy, the character of a government spending and taxation, that provides the context for monetary policy. Fiscal policies clearly have an additional significance in times of war, but in the modern welfare state, government spending plays just as central a role in the lives of most citizens. This fact establishes what may be termed the primacy of fiscal policy, and is a reason why much of the political debate in Western democracies is centered on the nature of public spending. Well, 500 years of that debate is in your book, Quasi. That's why it's called uh, War and Gold, because most fiscal policy until the 20th century was about war and most money was about the metallic standard. Uh, this is really asking you about the whole book, but can you tell us what you learned from 500 years of history? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. I think that the 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 big... There are a number of sort of turning points in the in the history... I mean, clearly, and, the, and this is where the book starts, the discovery of the new world is uh, massively interesting because I have a, an old-fashioned view that essentially there was a huge influx of um, gold and silver bullion, essentially, that drove inflation and economic activity. Now, there are modern scholars who dispute that, but this was very much the understanding um, of people like John Maynard Keynes, and I quote him quite extensively. So the facts themselves can be debated but how those facts have been perceived uh, over many years is the same and that really kicks off a period of, of western expansion of competition military competition there's also the sense in which military competition spurs new forms of finance so it's no coincidence that the bank of england is formed or rather created uh, partly in response to the uh, what's called the Nine Years' War, which is less famous than the Seven Years' War, but it's all about containing the power of Louis the Fourteenth. And essentially, the history is, is trying to bring fiscal policy back uh, to its central, an obvious uh, central role that it plays, not only in politics but also um, in driving economies. Right, and at the core of this is obviously the relationship between debt and money. Uh, yeah. uh, we have this revolution, the so-called revolution of Dutch finance at the end yeah. of the 17th century. And you write something, well, I find it particularly interesting as someone who's covered the Asian markets, which when I was there as a youth a long time ago, didn't have any government bond markets. So this I thought was particularly interesting. And I'll, I'll read it in full. Uh, and it relates to that period of the uh, 1690s, the formation of the Bank of England. It was also true, contrary to what some exponents of free enterprise might surmise, that the City of London's complex structures of services could not have been built up by the mid-18th century without the government's extensive borrowing needs. 
there was simply no industrial sector whose bonds could be used for the same purpose. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? That's right. So if you look at the origin of the city, um, and I'm talking about the city of London, and also to a lesser degree, well, to um, Amsterdam, but they had the East India Company. You know, the vast majority of traders in, in securities, in paper, were trading government bonds, you know, and that was something which uh, people forget. I mean, people assume that, oh, well, the stock market emerged, you know, almost by accident and people were trading shares. And But there were very few companies uh, in the early or the late 17th century. There were about two or three. Um, you had the British East India Company, you had the Muscovy Company. Latterly, in the early 18th century, you had the South Sea Company. But the vast amount of transactions, the proportion of transactions, was in government debt. Um, and actually, if you look at New York as well, the, the huge development of Wall Street happened in the 1860s when essentially the federal government had to finance uh, the Civil War. And that led to an enormous uh, number, of not only of securities that were being sold, but then, of course, all the apparatus that you need to trade the securities. You've got stockbrokers, uh, stock jobbers, as they were called, uh, people who were essentially salesmen as well, marketing the, the products. I mean, the, the, the U.S. government bonds um, in the 1860s used to finance civil war created a whole plethora of uh, professionals that were there marketing bonds, much as, you know, with roadshows and that sort of thing. So the point that I was making was that the need to finance government debt, the need to raise money uh, in capital markets for sovereign uh, debt is a massive driver to what we think of as the stock market. So my, my experience out in, in Asia in the early 90s is there was no bond market. There wasn't, therefore, no risk-free rate. And the market, the market makes up its risk-free rate. So everybody's making up a risk-free rate. And that was usually, they started with the yield on US government bonds and they added a premium. So the creation of what we call this risk-free curve actually lays a, a bigger foundation, doesn't it? An intellectual foundation. That, 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 that's absolutely right. So, so that was one of the things, you know, from a historical point of view that, that one finds very interesting. I mean, you look at, you know, the 17th and 18th century, there's always a, a view that the Dutch can finance um, their state, if you like, much more cheaply than uh, the, the English. Um, and this is at the time of the Union, so I could say the British. And then, of course, the big uh, out, well, one a big uh, sovereign that had problems financing debt was France, because they didn't have the institutions, they didn't have a central bank until eighteen hundred, whereas the Bank of Amsterdam is, I think, sixteen oh nine, and the Bank of England is sixteen ninety four. So, for the entirety of the eighteenth century, the UK and what would become the Netherlands had a central bank, which meant that uh, they could issue debt very easily. And the interest rates that they were paying were much lower. And of course, everything else, as you say, that's priced off sovereign uh, interest rates, um, it can be priced at a much lower um, rate of uh, interest. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point you make in the book. We think of the past as the period of sound money and the gold standard. But actually, that evolves out of a great experiment. That's right. With money, with paper money in seventeen seventeen twenty, And one of the reasons, certainly argued by Neil Ferguson as to why France is unable to uh, have a bond market, unable to mobilise its private sector savings is because of John Law and his, his uh, destruction of faith and all. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm, again, I mean, since I've left government, I've been reading more about John Law. I think he gets a very bad press. I, I, I actually think that um, uh, 
some of the, and I've been reading a bit of stuff about this in France, quite a lot of the colonial adventures and colonial, certainly in the Americas, um, was, in fact, I think, stimulated by law. I don't think his legacy was entirely negative. I mean, the, the received view is that he had paper money. It blew up in about 1722. He flees to Venice, dies in 1729. And the French essentially avoid all forms of securitization, if you want to call it that, paper money until the revolution. And, and then the Bank of France comes in in 1800. But I think there is some evidence to suggest that um, there was quite a lot of colonial um, economic activity that was driven in 18th century France. And John Law had something to do with that, or his legacy. We are very grateful to John Law at the Library of Mistakes because we, amongst one of the donations we received was the first, uh, uh, the first edition of his treatise on money and credit, uh, which we sold at auction for eighteen and a half thousand pounds. So, wow! I'm amazed that you, you, you that you didn't get more for that. I think that's an extraordinary, extraordinary book. Actually, extraordinary. Well, a milestone of intellectual history. That particular form of paper money came in good for us and keeps us, <laughs> keeps us running as a charity. That's brilliant. Fra France, well, I want to get to France because you've got a, an incredible statistic here in France, which I'll read out. So we're jumping forward now because we have to, because there's 500 years to go. Yeah, yeah. We'd, I mean, I, I hadn't realised that we were going to methodically go through it. Well, well it's, it's the ideas along the way. So you, so you have this yeah. incredible statistic for the... Uh, the debt to GDP. So, uh, and I'll read again. Interestingly, the ratio of the debt to gross national product in France in 1789, so this is the precursor to the revolution, yeah. that is the size of the national debt as a proportion of the entire economy, was only 63%. That's right. Which would compare favorably to the ratio to advanced economies. I think the advanced economy averages just about 100. Japan, obviously, well above. Yeah, I mean, the book was written in 2015, so it, it, it's slightly, it's slightly more acute the situation in terms of the well, I suppose you'd argue that this is the this is the, this proves your point the the high levels of debt we sustain today are only possible because we've gone to a non-metallic paper yeah so that's, that's true and also the thing that did for France in 1789 was the rate of interest as well so it's not just the the debt to GDP ratio I think I put, make the point in the book you know they're paying about eight or nine percent on that debt and they simply can't afford it and that was why and I remember learning this. I did a PhD in um, history, in, in financial history. But if you look at the French Revolution, a much uh, underestimated um, cause of it was the fact that the 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 um, the state couldn't afford its debt. And the reason why the Estates General was called in 1789 for the first time in 175 years, it had been called in 1614. But the whole point was to try and work out how they could service the debt because, of course, they'd fought the Seven Years' War and lost. And then rather rashly, they supported the Americans in their War of Independence. But those two wars in the 1760s and 1770s meant by, the, by 1789, the French government, French kingdom, if you like, was, was severely in debt. Now, the absolute level of debt, as, I, as you pointed out, wasn't that high by modern standards. But it was the, it was the fact that they couldn't service the debt. And that's always the case, isn't it? It's always the interest payments that you pay on the debt that are particularly significant. Not necessarily always the, the absolute size of the debt itself. Yeah, and money is slightly easier to come by when you run a fiat system than when you run... That's right, and we can print the system. And they, and that was why they brought back one of the reasons, the principal reason that Louis XVI and Necker um, brought back the Estates uh, General. Um, and, then, and then, you know, 
the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, there is a, obviously a huge debate, which we can't go into in detail, about the, what, just how much debt a modern economy can carry. Yeah, that, I mean, that's... The currency system. You're right. I mean, I think that clearly, I mean, by historic standards, we're, we're in, in a quite a high indebted uh, era, particularly for peacetime. And one of the points that I'm always fascinated by is the extent to which, you know, in wartime, states find resources that they never knew they even had. Um, and I think that's a very interesting, uh, interesting observation. And in a way, you could argue that the COVID situation we experienced was a form of wartime. Yeah. So uh, jumping forward again, because we're trying to cover the big ideas in this protectionism. I think most people would be surprised at the levels of protectionism uh, in America. Yeah, that's right. Great development. And uh, why not read from Alexander Hamilton? He's the man of the moment. Uh, so we'll read, mm. we'll read from him. And uh, interesting to get your ideas on, on the role of uh, protectionism. So this is, this is Hamilton. Not only the wealth, but the independence and security of a country appear to be materially connected to, to the prosperity of manufacturers. Every nation with a view to these great objects ought to endeavor to possess within itself all the essentials of national supply. These comply the mean, these these comprise the means of subsistence, habitation, clothing, and defence. Uh, and you say Hamilton thus saw the goal of national supply or self sufficiency as justification for protecting duties, or duties on those foreign articles which are the rivals of the domestic ones intended to be encouraged. Now, there's a certain amount of déjà vu here. I mean, uh, Janet Yellen is talking about friendshoring. Uh, mm. We have been here before. Uh, what do, what do you think of the role of protection? So it's fascinating. I, I mean, if you look at a very kind of um, almost simplistic, well, very simplistic um, understanding of American history. You, you think of it as a, a great free trading nation. And, and you assume, some people, that it's always been like that. But actually, if you look at the history, it's always, it's, it's basically been a lot of it at the time, been driven by protection. So from Alexander Hamilton's time, and he was the first Secretary of the Treasury in the early 1790s, Right through to, I'd argue, 1930, protectionism is the dominant theme in terms of the policy of the federal government. And of course, you've got to remember that there was no federal in income tax until 1913. So the principal way in which the federal government, and it was a small government in those days, didn't do that much. But the principal way that it financed itself was through the tariff, um, the tariff on foreign goods. And that was something that was a huge part of the uh, American political debate in the 19th century. And it's interesting, when I listen to Trump, there are shades. I mean, he probably doesn't know the history. I don't know, but I don't know where it's come from. But when he talks about America first, when he talks about, you know, sticking it to the Chinese or whatever he says, when he talks about, you know, bringing back jobs uh, to the US, a lot of that language is very old and comes back or stretches back, derives from the time of Hamilton, from the time of the Republican, you know, the Republicans all through the 19th century, the Whigs, they were called initially, and then the Republicans, and right through to the 1920s, where it was still a part of the Republican Party's orthodoxy uh, to have a tariff to protect their domestic industries. And it was, and the Smoot-Hawley tariff famously in 1930 which people say was a big cause of the Great Depression or exacerbated the Great Depression. That was only the end of, of about 140 years of tariff policy. And the Democrats, ironically, the pro-slave Democrats, 
were very much for free trade because they wanted to be able to import industrial goods from, from Britain and not be in, in hock to the industrial forces in the north, the north of the United States. Some of the great pools of wealth that still are with us today actually were created in that period, whether it was Carnegie or Rockefeller. That's right. Behind the barriers of these. these. And the point I have is you've got a high, you've got a high tariff wall and you're not paying any income tax. So Carnegie, for most of his uh, for most of his career, and Rockefeller to a, 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 an extent as well, they were they were indulged in very lucrative industrial enterprises, which essentially were protected because of the tariffs um, against foreign imports, and at the same time they weren't paying any income tax. So you can see how you can accumulate huge amounts of capital in that system. And this has a role in monetary policy as well, doesn't it? Because one thinks of William Jennings Bryan and what he was about was was basically attacking these combinations in favour, at least theoretically, of what were small farmers. So there's also another story behind your story of money, credit and debt. Yeah, so Jennings Bryan was a Democrat. And and one has to understand that, I mean, very crudely, very um, broadly, broad brush, the, the Democrats before 1900 were the Free Trade Party. I mean, they were the party of the South originally. They were the party of agriculture. And most of the tariffs affected industrial goods. And as I've said, you know, if you're a Southern plantation owner, you've got slaves, but also you've got the machinery that you have, you want to pay as little for. And you'd much rather buy it from Britain than buy it from um, Northern manufacturers. Um, because they're more expensive. And a lot of the battles before the Civil War um, and after were about this tariff, where the Republicans or the, their antecedents, the Whigs, were, were, were very much protecting Northeast industries. Um, and they were, they were, you know, we fought a war. The 1812 war was, um, you know, the consequences of that were very much um, driving protection because... Um, British uh, industrial goods after the war were essentially dumped on the US and and the US brought in tariffs. It's a man called Henry Clay. They brought in tariffs to prevent those British uh, manufactured goods from swamping and undermining uh, the industrial base in the north, particularly in the northeast. And it was that industrial base that essentially, you know, develops, you know, to put a cut a long story short, wins the Civil War, is the industrial base that is driving um, Carnegie um, and Frick and all these people, and also essentially saved the West, arguably, in World War One. They built this huge industrial capacity. And the point I make in the book was that it was built behind uh, tariffs. So, so Jennings Bryan really opens a new front in this debate between fiscal yeah. and monetary policy, because it's about democracy, isn't it? There's a growing democracy here. That's right. So, so, just, let me, so just let me read one bit from George Burke, yeah. one that you have in the book, because I think it sums it up really rather well, this transformation going underway and the consequences of it. Uh, so you say in the book, placing monetary policy in the hands of politicians creates instability. This opinion was perhaps most pithily expressed by George Bernard Shaw in his 1928 book, The Intelligent Woman's Guide to Socialism and Capitalism, then you quote Shaw, who says, you have to choose between trusting to the natural stability of gold and the natural stability of the honesty and intelligence of the members of the government. And with due respect to these gentlemen, I advise you, as long as the capitalist system lasts, to vote for gold. Uh, Yeah, well, (laughs) (laughs) 
I think there was a view that, I mean, you mentioned Jennings Bryan, but I think, you know, his view was, you know, he's coming from the West. He's not connected to the Northeastern elites. So the industrial base of the Northeast, the banking and finance that underpin that industrial base, those are things that, you know, if you're a Western rural Democrat, are totally alien and and often regarded as hostile. So in his famous Cross of Gold speech, you know, you shall not uh, thrust upon the brow of man, this crown of thorns, you shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold, which is one of the most famous um, conference, party conference speeches in America. His point was that you you, you need to have freer supplies of money. You need to have, um, you don't need, you shouldn't have sound money because farmers uh, who are often indebted need to be able to have cheap money to to run agriculture. And, And what he was saying was that industrialists and bankers in the east of the United States were essentially strangling uh, the ability of farmers in the west uh, to borrow money and to to, to grow um, their, their businesses, their agricultural concerns. And again, the Democrat Party rallied behind him. I think he was the candidate, the Democratic candidate three times and lost uh, every time. But it was, he spoke for a large uh, section of rural America, Western America, Southern America. And it was interesting that when FDR came in in 1932 or 33, um, one of the first things he did was effect- effectively come off the gold standard. Um, and for people at the time, people who knew their history and had lived through that time, it would very much have been seen as as a partial vindication of William uh, Jennings Bryan's uh, looser money, you know, by metallism, there's a whole debate about having silver as part of the standard, which FDR mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got us to FDR. You have some uh, sort of stunning statistics in the FDR period and why he had to adopt that policy. So I'll read again from the book. In statistical terms, the ratio of debt service to national income, or in less technical terms, the amount of money being spent to pay debts as a proportion of national income, went from 9% in 1929 to 19.8% in 1932-33. The debt was, of course, aggregated, uh, aggravated by the falling prices. The stunning thing about that statistic, because we take that as the, the worst situation we have perhaps ever been in, is it once again, there are many modern countries with significantly higher levels than 19.8. Yeah. This is not government debt to GDP necessarily. This is the no. total amount of debt to GDP. That would include China, France, uh, uh, I think Australia is pretty close to that level now. Canada is well above it. The Netherlands, Sweden, Norway. Uh, this, as you as we've just debated, this produced actually a change in monetary policy. The end of the gold standard, because yeah, the I mean, it, was inflated away because it simply couldn't be paid back. Is that right? So I think that the world after about certainly 1934, but particularly after 45 and Bretton Woods, and then we will talk about that. And then, of course, the world after 71 is one which is completely different. I mean, when you've essentially got fiat currency, a lot of the dynamics um, and the amount of debt that you can sustain become much higher because you're not basically tethered by by commodities, by gold. Um, and going back to the FDR, you know, point, the Roosevelt point, was that, you know, again, he, he was a, a seen as, in his time as a populist who raged against bankers and, and, and was seen as a traitor to his class because he came from the Northeast and was a, 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 an affluent sort of patrician. But he adopted the language of people like Jennings Bryan uh, when he was talking about bankers and when he was talking about the gold standard, which, of course, 
he effectively suspended in the in the in the mid thirties. So, so we get to after the war. Uh, there's a remarkable man running the Federal Reserve called William McChesney Martin, and uh, yeah. his his views on this relationship between money and fiscal policy something that that runs and runs and runs. But I think he puts it very clearly in this speech that you cite called "Good Money Is Coined Freedom," which he made in 1968. Uh, and this is what he said. What we are confronted with today is a budgetary problem that's been getting progressively worse. Uh, and uh, what we are moving towards gradually is not deficit finance for a temporary period, but perpetual deficit. And the natural that's consequences right. of perpetual deficit, situation in government spending outstripped tax revenues in every single year, was a weak currency. Well, I think we probably all agree with that. But it's interesting when you live in a world where everybody's doing it, what that, what the consequences are when everybody's running it or virtually everybody's running a perpetual deficit, which is worth yeah, it's a very, it's a very, um, it's a very difficult space. I mean, I, I was of the view, and I even said this to Liz Truss at the time. I've, I've never been a Reaganite. I've never been someone who thinks that deficit spending essentially can pay for itself. And one of the issues that I had in government was. You know, and and I think what went wrong last uh, uh, last October when I when I think about it was you've got to have you know a balanced approach to fiscal policy. You can't just spend money that you don't have, but at the same time, you know, if you're going to have tax cuts, you've got to have spending restraint. So there's, there's always got to be a balance. If you're going to spend the money, you've got to find out where you're going to raise it, and if you're going to forego. Um, you know, tax revenue in the first instance, regardless of what happens in the long run, you've got to try and restrain spending. And I think a lot of modern politics um, from the COVID period, but before that, from the time of fiat money in the 70s, has essentially been very lax about having a balanced approach to spending. And that's one of the reasons why we're in a much greater state of indebtedness uh, than, than has ever been the case in peacetime. Wartime has been different. We might talk about that. I don't know. But but in peacetime, there's always been an attempt, you know, for hundreds of years to try and match um, revenues with spending and try and match, um, you know, and it doesn't have to be exact, but you've got to give that sort of impression. You've got to give that assurance that you're trying to, to you're trying to balance yeah. the spending and the um, and and uh, uh savings. Getting that balance right brings us to one of the conclusions of your book. And once again, I'll, I'll read, uh, read again. The third way to fight debt is to grow out of it. This was the way which Great Britain and the United States followed after the Napoleonic Wars, in Britain's case, and after the Second World War, in the case of both of these English-speaking nations. In the early 2010s, which is when the book was written, the prospects for significant economic growth in the advanced economies looked less likely than was the case after 1945, but still the hope of economic expansion persists was your was your goal therefore to be that chancellor yeah look well no i mean i think i think we wanted to get growth we were very focused on growth and the prime minister and i were very focused on growth and i think it's going to come back i mean i think you know there were measures in a way it was too fast uh, uh it was too quickly done i was um always concerned that we needed to have spending but you know we ended up uh, talking about the tax cuts and not the, and not spending restraint and its first order. It's not absolute cuts in spending. It's trying to reduce the uh, rate of increase of spending. And I think it's very important that you try and do that. But but ultimately, the growth conundrum is what is going to be solved. It uh, needs to be solved to, to, to pay for the public services that we all expect. And I think 
um, you know, from Liz Truss's point of view, from my point of view, also from what I hear from the Labour um, shadow team, growth is absolutely essential. And even I think the Chancellor uh, last week said, Jeremy Hunt said that this was an autumn statement for growth. Everyone realises that without growth and how we define that, maybe 2% a year, we're going to struggle to pay for the welfare state that we've that we've constructed. And so growth or the means of growth become a, a really central question in determining policy and, and, and the focus of a government. And, and the theme that runs through your book is how is fiscal dominance and how it shapes monetary policy. So there are two different types of growth, which is nominal and real. Yeah. If, if the great rush to get a higher level of real growth fails, does that mean, because you say there are three ways, and one of the ways is actually simply to live with higher inflation, is is the first attempt to get that higher level of growth, given that it didn't succeed, does that now make it much more likely that the way forward, given the 500 years of history outline, is going to be, has to be more inflation? So look, my view, Russell, I mean, it's great. I mean, my view is that, um, my view is that the next few years, whoever's in power, are going to see increases in tax, because you've got a, a, a state that's growing at, the expenditure growing up maybe four or five percent, um, maybe even three percent. Let's say three percent. And if the economy is growing at one percent, it doesn't take you know the brains of a of a of a of a, 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 a genius to work out that it's unsustainable because you, your income, your revenue, your wealth is growing at a slower rate than your expenditure, and that means you either borrow money uh, or you have to reduce your expenditure. And I think politically it's much harder to reduce expenditure than to borrow money or try and raise more taxes. The problem with raising more taxes is that, in my view, that's going to slow your actual rate of growth. So that's what we call the doom loop, where essentially, in order to pay for rising expenditure, you put up taxes, but you but then you have to put up taxes more because you're not growing the economy fast enough. And that's very much a real problem that... Uh, you know, the Europe, I, I wouldn't say the US or Asia so much, but Europe and, and the UK are facing. Yeah, right. I mean, you, this was written in 2014, but in some ways perhaps forecast what was to come on the subject of inflation and paper money. It's the last line of the book proper before the uh, epilogue, but let me let me read it in the context of, of the discussion we've just had. Paper money, preferably in the form of a national currency over which a country had exclusive control, allowed governments to print ever greater quantities of cash. It was paper money which had so far so far shielded some of the most developed countries on earth from the consequences of their excessive spending. This was an outcome of which John Law would have been proud. So it has, yeah, it has shielded us. Does it continue to shield us, that monetary policy? I think it does to an extent. I mean, if you look at the period... So the book was written in 2013-14. I think it was published in fourteen which is nearly 10 years ago. But if you look at the middle in that period, we had very, very low interest rates. Um, we had quite low growth rates. Um, and we had what was called, you don't hear the phrase that much these days, but quantitative easing. And 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 that was, a, quantitative easing is a fancy phrase for essentially printing money. So we had very low interest rates, very low inflation, bizarrely, and we were printing money. Now, monetarists would say that the consequence of that would ultimately be very high levels of inflation. And they use, the, you know, the quantity theory of money. They use, you know, Milton Friedman's adage that uh, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon 
to explain uh, the, the inflation, the high levels of inflation we've seen in the last uh, one or two years. Yeah, no, the greatest monetary experiment in history, at least in my opinion, is the creation of the euro. And you've got a, a wonderful, yeah. some, some wonderful observations on that. So I'll just let, I'll read, I'll read a bit on that, and then you can tell us where you think yeah, no, very interesting. is going. Uh, and this is what you write. Uh, it, it, it was obvious even before the euro was launched that the single currency was an almost purely political project, which would be pursued without any real regard to the underlying economic reality. As the Frenchman Jacques Ruff had said, Europe will make itself by money or not at all. In the words of the Portuguese Prime Minister Antonio Guterres at the Madrid summit in December 1995 were even more grandiose. And this is what Guterres said. When Jesus resolved to find a church, he said to Peter, you are Peter the rock and upon the rock I will build any church. You are the euro and upon this new currency we will build our Europe. Well, have they built a new currency? Is it a new Well, they've been very, they have built the currency, but they've been very quiet about that. If you actually look at the... um, the statements and, you know, from way back from the 60s and 70s um, with uh, Jean Monnet and all these people, it was clear to them that if they were going to build a United States of Europe, which many of them wanted to do, I mean, you hear less of that now, but the the project was very much a, um, you know, let's build a United States of Europe that is going to counter the Soviet Union and the United States. That was, you know, the Cold War intent of many, not all, but many of the people behind the European project. And for them to have a a political union, one needed to have a monetary union. And many of them were pretty explicit about that uh, in the run-up to the creation of the euro in the 1990s. Now, of course, given, you know, immigration levels, given the rebirth of uh, national, uh, uh, you know, instincts, national nationalism, what have you, people are less explicit about the fact that the euro was in the minds of its creators very much a precursor to political union. Um, you know, that's off, that's overlooked now. That isn't part of the debate. But as a historian, you've got to look at what people were saying at the time. And I was struck, actually, when I did the research on that chapter, by how often and, and how many people were very open and explicit about saying, if we're going to build a European uh, state, which, you know, that was the, the federalist dream, we need to have a, a single currency. And that was, that was, and they talk about Lincoln, they talk about the United States, they talk about the centrality of the dollar. You know, for them, the yeah, United States of Europe would not be possible yeah. uh, without a single currency. It's interesting that they mentioned Lincoln because he, uh, he was president during the bloodiest war in American history. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, and a currency that actually split in two during his presidency. That's right, and the greenback. I mean, that was the first... Well, they had continentals in the Revolutionary War, but the greenback again was a was a, a, a need for paper currency, so that they could print their way to to winning the war. They could print money to buy goods and material and pay men to win the war. And then, of course, they go back once once the Civil War is won, they go back to something that is more uh, akin to a gold standard. Um, but they, but uh, the, during the Civil War, they 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 threw caution to the wind. They 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 borrowed um, huge amounts. They printed paper money, and they won the war. And that's a common theme of the book. That you know, in peacetime you can be orthodox, but in a wartime situation, um, you know, you throw orthodoxy to the wind and deal with the problem at hand. And you know, the book was written, I think, nine years or whatever, seven years before COVID. But actually, the COVID period would have been quite an interesting chapter. Uh, at the end of the book, because it was exactly the same 
even though it wasn't an actual war, there was exactly the same thinking in terms of the fact that, okay, we're going to spend hundreds of billions to deal with this. I mean, there's a line I quote in Keynes, I think it's in the Economic Consequences of the Peace, where he says, you know, before the war, he's talking about the First World War, we spent millions. And then after the war, we spent hundreds of millions. And, 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 we, and we were none the poorer. So it was essentially saying that the war kind of unlocked all these resources that people, it's a bit of a facetious comment, but it, you know, it unlocked all these um, uh, resources that we didn't know we had because people went the extra mile to, to, to fund it. We say we were none the poorer, but owners of government bonds were clearly much the poorer in purchasing power. Yeah, they were. But, but of course, for someone like Keynes, you know, he talked about the euthanasia of the rentier, which is essentially, you know, his view was that why should society impoverish itself? so that, you know, bondholders can be paid their full amounts. Now, I think he's wrong, actually, on that. I think that bondholders should be taken very seriously. But there was a view, I think, and it's still around, uh, that, that, you know, as long as we can pay for stuff and buy goods, um, you know, we can, we can, it doesn't matter what happens to the currency or the government debt. Speaking speaking of bondholders, I don't think it's in the book, but there is this famous quote from James Carville, who was a, an advisor to President Clinton that if reincarnated, he would like to come back as the bond market. Yeah. Is, this not, is this not your fervent wish? No, well, you know, I was uh, in a way a victim of the bond markets uh, last uh, autumn. And I, I totally understand their power. And I did before, but it's just that I think that um, uh, the, the, the bond market is not a rational uh, uh, player. You know, some, some things it can absorb, uh, like all the extra COVID spending, it absorbed without much of a murmur. But then, you know, if you um, step out of line in a small way, it can react very, uh, very strongly against you. And I've, I've bear personal witness of that. Well, it's, it's a tremendous book. I know many people who listen to this podcast are coming new to financial history. I hope the discussion over the last 45 minutes or 40 minutes has encouraged them that it's more than relevant to all the debates we're having today about everything. Uh, and this book is, is as good an introduction and as good as a 500-year history of this subject, as anyone is ever going to read. And I Thank think it will let people focus in on the bits they want to focus in more. And uh, what is the point of financial history? It's to get us asking the right questions. And I think your book really helps us uh, ask the right questions. So I want to thank you for writing it. I want to thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Russell. I really enjoyed that. It was a, it was a really good overview of bits of highlights of the book. But obviously, it's uh, difficult to do it justice in 40 minutes. But thank you so much uh, for hosting me today. Thanks for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, simply visit libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy little nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on X, LinkedIn and Instagram. Also, if you'd like to learn more about the world of investment, the Library of Mistakes runs an outstanding course called The Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more, please see the link in the show notes. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast platform of your choice.